Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Jesus, on this day in which we um, recognize and lament the sacredness of Good Friday, And the sacrifice you made on the cross for us. We pray that as we uh, sit in this space this evening, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would make yourself known. That the feelings that uh, come ushering in this evening would connect us deeply to you in the work of the cross sacredness and the silence of this moment. Speak, Lord Jesus. It is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So my name is Leroy Barber and uh, it's good to be here this evening uh, as we celebrate Good Friday. Um, I don't know what tradition you've come from, but Um, I grew up in a uh, black Baptist tradition, and Good Friday was uh, a a high, high time in our church uh, in in a lot of ways. And on Good Friday, we would meet um, usually at noon on Good Friday. Uh, That was when schools were closed and everything was closed. The times have changed. Um, uh, And so now most, most times we meet in the evenings. But in that time, we would walk through the seven last sayings of Christ, uh, and seven different um, speakers would come and uh, talk about the moment um, in which uh, Christ, uh, in which they were recognizing in that in that moment. And so tonight, we will do that. We will do that with a little bit different, um, with a little bit different uh, flair to it, um, if you will. Uh, we will have. Uh, different speakers. Uh, we will have, uh, we will look at the seven last words, um, but um, we have some incredible musicians with us tonight. Uh, my wife Donna uh, and Sonia Gibbs will lead us through our musical uh, artistic parts this evening, and uh, Sonia has also brought some of her artwork um, to uh, help set the scene tonight as well. Um, and so we're thankful for them. We're thankful for uh, our, our speakers, and I'll introduce each of them as we get uh, to their words. But I want to start um, with uh, this, the first word, and I will, I will set a little bit of, of, of the scene. So this is traditionally what we call Holy Week, right? Uh, uh, the Passion Week for some. And it starts uh, the week before. Uh, And the week before, I want to read a scripture um, that leads us into the week before, from the week before, from John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, 
Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Jesus Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was, what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Many start the Passion Week on, uh, on Palm Sunday. But this scene, uh, six days before the Passover, uh, Jesus goes to Bethany and uh, uh, is fascinating, this scene, right? Then it starts with Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, right? This week starts with a meal, a gathering with a person who was raised from the dead. And with two women, Mary and Martha, who had followed Jesus along the path, are here at this scene uh, as, they, uh, as the Passover is coming. Jesus sits in a house with a marginalized family to set the scene of the Passion Week. It starts in this living room. And it says three things. Three things were happening here. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, is reclining. Mary, Martha, is going about what, what we knew of her story before. She's now serving, but there's no complaining from Martha about serving or what anybody else is doing in this scene. She is now changed, and she is now serving uh, as a part of who she is. And Mary... Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus listening in stories before, now this Mary breaks open some perfume and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. One who's reclining after death. The other who now is uh, is. Now confirmed in who she is and doesn't need to explain that to anyone. And the other who is full of worship and breaks open oil and anoints Jesus' feet. This marginalized family ushers in the week of passion. And this would be a hard week for Jesus. This would be a week in which he is taken from courthouse to courthouse. This would be a week where he would sit with the disciples and one who would betray him uh, would betray him. And he would march around from courthouse to courthouse, ending up uh, at this scene of Golgotha. And the scene, we will hear it unfold from our preachers tonight. The first words as Jesus is lifted on this cross, crowns of thorns placed on his head, right? Uh, sword gashed through his side, right? Uh, there is uh, 
this is not um, an innocent scene. This is a scene that is quite nasty. There is blood. There is violence. There is disappointment. Jesus is now on the cross, and Jesus is now uh, giving his life. But the first word, the first word that comes is, Father, forgive them. From Luke 23, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. I'm trying to have a solemn voice tonight. Y'all don't know me as a solemn guy, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying my best. Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And he divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even snared at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. I don't know about you, but the question in this first word that comes to me is Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What were they doing? We know there was, we know they placed this crown of thorns on his head. We know they placed the sword through his side. We know the blood came streaming down. I grew up in a Baptist church. I can, I can preach that thing. But is that all they were doing? Some other thoughts came to my mind. What they were doing in this scene, they had misinterpreted power. They thought that the power sat with the king. And so they were, they were taking Jesus to the cross as a criminal. As one who didn't have power, they misinterpreted the whole thing, right? They didn't know where true power sits, right? The rulers, it says, sneered at him. They had contempt for Jesus, disgrace and dishonor, as if Jesus was the one without power in the scene. Father, forgive them. For they are misreading power. How many times have you misread power? Then they, what else were they doing? They had become agents of the empire. They were upholding a system that historically harmed them. And all the marginalized people around them were treated as less. And in this scene, they were now agents of the empire. They were not woke Jewish folks. <laughs> Father, forgive them. For they are becoming just like their oppressors. What were they doing? They were working against their own interest. The week before, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords 
sits with a family of marginalized people to usher in the kingdom. And they had no idea what Jesus had in store for them. They had given the system more power than Jesus in their minds. Father, forgive them, for they are not valuing themselves as the created wonderful beings that you put on this earth. Father, forgive them. So not just for the, 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 like, not just for the story of the day of the crowns and of, of, of the sword, right, uh, and all, and the nailing of his hands and the blood streaming down, but they were misinterpreting power, which would go against them for a long time. They were becoming agents of the empire, which would lead to them, like, working against themselves. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they are sealing right now. There is a bit of good news in this space. And the good news is that God already knew this. Jesus would die in the middle of their sin. In the midst of the empire's arrogance, Jesus would die and forgive them. In the midst of power, human power gone awry, sitting around, arrogant as it can be, Jesus still forgives. In fact, Jesus uses our own habits to free us. Forgiveness uh, uh, was, was easy for the Father and Son and Holy Spirit to figure out because this was predictable. You and I are predictable. That in our arrogance, in our sin, in our zeal for power, in our wanting to be a part of empire, the, the, the ends are predictable. If you know what's coming, you can crush it. Hey, hate to use a sports analogy, but I, I will. <laughs> if you know the pitch that's coming, you can crush it. Right? If, if, that's why baseball players are doing all of these signs and all of this stuff, because they're trying to hide what's coming. Because if you don't know what's coming, you can't deal with it. But if you know... If you steal a sign, then you can crush it. You can nail that pitch. I imagine this scene unfolding as nasty and as ugly as it was. Jesus looking up at the Father and them giving a head nod. Yeah, we know. Forgive them. Yeah, we know they're arrogant. Forgive them. Yeah, we know they keep working against their own interests. Forgive them. 
Father, forgive them because we know what they will do. Our second word, Second word will come from Pastor Andrew Morgan. I still use a Bible, a physical old school one. And every time I do this, I never have space in these things. It's going to tip over at some point. I always like to stop. I only have a few minutes, but I still want to pray. Would y'all pray with me? Is that all right? All right. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for blessing us, for just being here. I thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. I thank you for what you've done on the cross, and I thank you even more for just for 
rising again, Lord. Allow the words that come off of my tongue just be straight from your Holy Spirit, just straight from you and none of me, Lord. I love you and I thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I was blessed uh, with the with the verse uh, from Luke 23, verse 43, and it says, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is a verse, from my understanding, that is heavily debated depending on where you put the comma. But I'm not really worried about the comma as much as the importance, of the emphasis of what Jesus was actually saying, like his intent. And so he was given a promise out that you will be with me in paradise. And that's the part that I really want to look at because there were two men as the scripture states that were there. And I like to look at it like this. This is the way God gave it to me. There's two men there in the same exact situation, but they asked two different ways. They were asking for two separate things. In verse 39, one man is hanging there and he says, save yourself. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. It says, save yourself and us too if you are, if you are Christ. He's kind of questioning it. This is kind of hitting on a point that Leroy had made just a moment ago. This man is pretty much following along in with the crowd and what they were saying back in verse 35. They were mocking them, all the rulers, or so they thought, you know, they were rulers and they thought they had power and authority. And this man is joining in with the same people who have him on the cross. And his, that's just his reaction. And we've all kind of been in one of those places before. So the question that kind of came up for me was, what am I doing personally? This was the question and it really just, I had to deal with myself before I was able to come in today was, what are the things that I'm doing to just go with the crowd? Those things that I can say are permissible, but I know 100% are not beneficial to me. The other part that got me was the other man in verses 40 and 41, he says, he tells the other man, don't you fear God? He's acknowledging his guilt. He says, you know, we're guilty. Once again, I'm paraphrasing it, but he's saying I'm, we're all guilty. Both of us are guilty here. He's acknowledging it. He's saying that the punishment is just, and he's willing to deal with the consequence. He couldn't choose it, but he's willing to deal with that consequence. The thing I love about that is this man knew, knowing that he was guilty of sin, he was tired. He came to the end of the road there and he just was acknowledging that that's it. Like, I know what I did was wrong. You know what you did was wrong. He rebukes his, I'm not going to say it was his friend, but he rebukes the, per, the other person on the cross, on his cross as well. And it also prompted me another, you know, it was another question that God brought to my attention. What are those unconfessed sins that I'm letting blind me to my situation? This man was able to confess and say, we did this to get us here. And from that, he was able to move forward and form a, a conversation with Jesus. We'll get to here in a second. But the other man, he just was doing what the rest of the crowd was doing. So for me, I had to internalize and say, okay, what are the things that's blinding me to my situation and the pivotal role that Jesus plays in, in changing that situation? 
when asking myself those that question, and what made me put it down and, and prompt possibly for you to ask that question, because it's those little things that we just keep inside of us that we choose to just say it's not bothering anyone else. But they could be that one thing that we need to be able to confess in order to just go a little bit deeper, to take that next step. And this man's next step, in verse 42, he didn't get fancy. It was really basic, the question he asked Jesus, or the statement. He says, just don't forget me. That's the way I'm going to put it. Just don't forget me when you make it to your kingdom. The thing I love about that is that this is the second time that he confesses that he knows that Jesus, who Jesus is. This is the second time for me that I'm looking at this man and I'm seeing his humility. He's on the cross with him and he's already rebuked his friend. But then he comes back to this place, this humble place of just saying, okay, but don't forget about me. The other gentleman, save me or save yourself, Jesus, and us too, if you can. He was looking for one particular thing. Southern man, just take me with you in your memory, if nothing else. The beautiful thing I love about Jesus' response after this man doubles down is that Jesus did not take this man off the cross. He went on to give him a promise, but he didn't take him off the cross. And that was the part that for me, I look at my situations and I look at the different things that I know I have done. A lot of situations and circumstances I put myself in. And the most beautiful thing about his grace, his mercy, and his love is that he didn't take me out of those situations. He changed me in them. And the most beautiful thing about that is I still got that promise. And I love the fact that there were times that I got a chance to let my flesh die. I got a chance to be with Jesus. I got a chance to to actually grow in love and and be changed and and be loved by him. I put down a a quote, a question. Um, I don't want to. notes behind. For me, as I'm looking at this story, the thing that hit me the most was that as a man of God, I looked at both men and I said, okay, one is obviously, if he could get off the cross, he would. Jesus saved yourself and us too. The other man Jesus, I just need you. Jesus gives him that promise, you will be with me in paradise. And the most beautiful thing about that promise, the thing that I just love about God is that in those moments when we just, when we're crying out, he remembers us. There was not a lot about that man that Jesus could say, hey, I'm going to remember this about you and that about you. And, and he just met him there. The man confessed that he was nothing. He was nobody but a sinner. And he comes to this place where Jesus promises him that he's going to take him with him. Do you want, the question for me was, do I want Jesus to take me? Do I really want to go where Jesus is going? Do I want to stay on that cross and die? Or do I just want a quick solution? Do I want to follow the crowd? 
Do I want to do what everyone else is doing? Or do I want to go through this pain? Do I want to go through this everything else in order for Jesus to just remember me? That means I'm going to be uncomfortable in a lot of different places. There was a story that a man said, and I'm not saying this as a plug, but there was a story that a man shared on the sit-up podcast with me and Leroy D. And he's a pastor in Kansas City, and he talked about how he went out to witness, and while he was in the streets of Kansas City, which is my hometown, he was witnessing to a young man, and the young man said, he's telling him all these stories about Jesus, and he said, man, Jesus would be with us if he was alive today. And the, the pastor goes on and asks him a little bit more, and he says, but you know, I don't think we can follow Jesus. And he's telling this story, and, and he's kind of confused because the young man is, he's like, well, you think Jesus would be with you, but you think he wouldn't follow him. And the reason why this young man was thinking that was because so often people came in to the inner city, talked about Jesus, but they didn't stay there. So he thought the people who followed Jesus didn't live there. How that story is applicable to this, what, what brought that to my attention was that that pastor then said, okay, here's my cross, here's me staying on, my, on that cross. He chose to dig in and create roots in that community with the marginalized, with the people who needed to know that they could follow Jesus. That's, in that moment, he realized, I've got to stay here. Are we staying here? Each individual person in here today, dig in your heart and your mind and, re and recognize, are you in those places where you can be there at the very last moment for someone? Jesus was on the cross with two individuals that were about to lose their life. Both of them had a chance. Because of the presence of God, their outcomes changed. The presence of Jesus being there changed the outcome. You can be where the marginalized are. You are not too fragile. You are not. You can do, you can follow his will. But will you choose? Because it will be painful. Sometimes when you deny what the rest of the crowd is doing, when you deny that false sense of power, and you come away from that false sense of authority, and you live with the marginalized, and you follow and you do what Jesus says do, it'll put you in some places of pain. We keep coming back to the regional reason, the original reason why I'm here right now and the part of the message that is the most important is the part where he says, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Is that really your desire? And are you willing to pay that cost? Are you willing to let him pay that cost? It's a real question. And we never want to leave and let a day go by without answering that question. When you wake up every day and you pick up your cross, are you going to be planted next to where two other people are going to be picking up their cross on that last breath? Are you going to pick up your cross and keep it neat and somewhere where your blood won't spill on anything and you can fold it up and put it in your pocket and pick it up and something later? put it somewhere else when it's more convenient. Are you willing to die today? Are you willing to give it all up? If you are, the beautiful thing is, when it comes to Jesus, he gives out promises, regardless of what commas are, 
truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a beautiful thing. I got a crown up in that kingdom, ain't that good news? I got a crown up in that kingdom, ain't that good news? I'm gonna lay down this world, gonna shoulder up my cross, gonna take it home to my Jesus, Ain't that good news? I got a robe up in that kingdom. Ain't that good news? I got a robe up in that kingdom. Ain't that good news? I'm gonna lay down this world. Gonna shoulder up my cross. Gonna take it home to my Jesus, ain't that good news? I got a savior in that kingdom, ain't that good news? I got a savior in that kingdom, ain't that good news? I'm gonna lay down this world, gonna show Gonna take it home to my Jesus, ain't that good news? I'm gonna lay down this world, gonna shoulder up my cross, gonna take it home to my Jesus, ain't that good news? third word will be given by Pastor Sonia Gibbs. The passage that um, I'm sharing about tonight is from John chapter 19, and it says this, and I'm reading from the message. It says, while the soldiers were looking after themselves, Jesus' mother, his aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood at the foot of the cross. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing near her, and he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then to the disciple, here is your mother. From that moment, the disciple accepted her as his own mother. Methodist minister Adam Hamilton says this about the passage. He says, Jesus looked down from the cross to see his mother, and I would add, he also saw all the women that were there. They were standing nearby. And as far as we know, there was only one of the 12 apostles that was there at the foot of the cross, the disciple who Jesus loved, usually identified as John. Naked and in horrible pain, Jesus thought not of himself, but was concerned for the well-being of his mother after his death. And this shows Jesus' humanity and the depth of love he had for his mother and for the disciple into whose care he entrusted her. 
In this text, we see that the soldiers, the accusers, the people of the empire, what are they doing? They're looking after themselves. But Jesus, in pain, dying on the cross, he is looking still after the ones that he loves. Right after this section in the text, John writes that Jesus knew in that moment, once he had given John to his mother and his mother to John, that he had accomplished everything that he needed to do. And as, a, as an adoptee, as an adoptive parent, what jumps out to me in this text is that the final thing that Jesus does is creates a family. A family not based on our blood, but on his. And as we gather closer to Jesus, we will hear him asking us to care for one another. We will hear him saying to us, this is your mother, this is your father, this is your son, and this is your daughter. Maybe tonight you're here and your future seems precarious. Maybe you're alone and you feel isolated. I invite you to come near the cross and to hear Jesus calling us towards one another, asking us to care for one another, considering what it means to belong to one another. Jesus is calling us to be family. Don't you weep Tell Martha not to mourn Oh Mary, don't you weep Tell Martha not to mourn If I could, 
surely, 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 surely I was. I stand on the rock. Stand on the rock. On the rock where Moses stood. Moses stood. See Pharaoh's army. Drowned in the sea one Drowned day. in the Red Sea. So don't you worry about it, Mary. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Don't weep. Don't weep. Don't weep. Tell Martha. Tell Martha not, not to Pastor Trinell Washington. Can I get comfortable in here, please? All right. How everybody doing this evening? My name is Pastor Washington. I heard it was Good Friday. It's Good Friday this evening. Did you know you woke up this morning with a victory? Amen. We woke up this morning with a victory. The victory. I'm going to be reading out of Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabbathani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a short scripture, but yet important scripture. I believe us that recognize our purpose have the fear that one day we will all feel as Jesus did on that ninth hour. To know that we have come so far for the faith. To know that we must sacrifice for the faith. But yet in all our purpose and passion for the faith, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is all-knowing but yet still is human in form, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a believer, I admit that I have felt like this. As a sinner, praying to God and not receiving what I wanted, I have also felt like this. But in the faith, we will be all tested and tried. Excuse me here. We will all be tested and tried in the faith. But what is faith? Even on our dying day, we don't have a heart of Jesus and a thought of Paul. I believe that it was... Paul in Romans, or uh, I take that back. Actually, it was Philippians 1 and 21, 1 and 20. He said, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, 
so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, from my labor, excuse me. Yet, what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. How many of us in our faith felt like Jesus in that ninth hour? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was the question. But I am convinced that God's love never fails. Romans 8, 35, 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our peril, our sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. We all have this faith walk with Christ. And in this faith walk, some of us sometimes feel like God has forsaken us. But I'm here to tell you that death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Persecution, principalities cannot separate us from the love of Christ. So on that ninth hour when Jesus was on the cross and he asked, why have you forsaken me? Was the question. But if he had not died for our sins, where would we be? And in that, we know that God has not forsaken us. We have life today because Christ has not forsaken us. And on this Good Friday, you should be in here with a smile on your face, knowing that even though he has died, yet he lives. Even though we will die in the flesh, yet we live. Because my God has not forsaken us. Glory to God. Sometimes 
fifth and sixth word will be done by Mark Charles. It's an honor to be with you this evening. Um, before I say anything, I want to acknowledge that tonight we are standing on, we are sitting on, this church was built on the land of the Chinook, the Cowlitz, and the Clackamas people. These were the people who were ethnically cleansed from these lands. These were the people who were exterminated from these lands. These were the people who were removed from these lands so the city of Portland and the state of Oregon could be built. Now, why do I say this? This is a Good Friday service. We're here to remember Christ. Well, I think if we're really going to appreciate Good Friday, we need to acknowledge our complicity in the crucifixion of our Lord. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was addressing the crowd, he said to them, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God through miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. In 1851, Peter Burnett, the first governor of California, in his State of the State address, said to his citizens that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this Result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of man to avert. The governor of California was not saying there's a famine that's happening and people are starving and we cannot stop it and soon they will all perish. He was not saying there is a disease that broke out that we cannot control and soon these people will all die. He was saying we, the United States of America, a nation with a manifest destiny, is waging a war of extermination and we can't stop killing these people until they are completely wiped out. And you who have moved here And you who have bought lands here, and you who have set up your homes here, with the help of wicked men, put these people to death so that you could complete your manifest destiny. So we, with the help of wicked men, put our Lord to death by nailing him to a cross. 
we are complicit. By virtue of being here as Americans, we are complicit. This is not a mental exercise. This is our reality. We live in a nation. We celebrate a history that waged a war of extermination that was nearly successful. And we are complicit. And we need to remember that. We cannot forget that. The words I have to speak tonight come from John verses 19, beginning in verse 28. Later, John wrote, knowing that everything had been finished and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. I am thirsty. Now, one of the challenges if you have children is that children listen to everything you say and they don't forget, correct? They will remind you of something that you said when you were when they were five. And now when they're going off to college, they will say, Dad, remember you promised this thing to me. Children listen, and they remember, and disciples listen, and they remember. Have you ever tried to mentor someone and teach them something, and they remind you of something you said a few years ago, or a few days ago, or even a few hours ago, and the moment they say it, you want to shrivel up and die because it contradicts everything you have just said. We all know this experience, correct? And so Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, I am thirsty. And John, the gospel writer, records this. Because disciples, like children, remember everything. And in John chapter 4, he wrote this. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming to this well to draw. He told her, go back to your husband and come back to me. Disciples never forget. Jesus is on the cross. And he says, I am thirsty. And John had recorded Jesus' words before. That he promised living water. And if you drank this water, you would never be thirsty again. And now the man who gave life to the Samaritan woman and this entire village seems to have forgotten this. And is crying out from the cross, I am thirsty. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he is fully human. He's also fully God, and I have a hard time relating to that most of the time. But I love the passages in Scripture where I understand Jesus is fully human. And Jesus, more than anything, and almost more than anything else, did not want to die. When Peter tempted him and said, you do not have to die, Jesus was so tempted, he turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not on the side of God, but of men. When Jesus was in the garden and he was crying out to his father, Father, please take this cup from me. I do not want to die. But he ended that prayer. Praise the Lord. By saying, but not your will, but my will be done. Jesus did not want to die. It's so easy to paint this halo around his head. And he was this guy who went around and wasn't tempted and wasn't trapped and wasn't angry and didn't feel these emotions that we feel that burst out inside of us when we remember that our nation waged a war of extermination against our people and we just want to scream. And it's in these times that it is so absolutely refreshing to remember that Jesus was fully human and he dealt with all of these emotions. And this passage gives us a glimpse into what Jesus was feeling. This message, this vinegar that he was given, references back to Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, let me read this for you. 
because it gives us a bit of a glimpse into what Jesus was thinking when he called out it was thirsty because he did this to what? To fulfill the scriptures. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the passage that he was referencing. He knew they were giving him vinegar. He knew what scripture he was fulfilling. And so he had to have known what was in Psalm 69 when he referenced it, dying on the cross, crying out against what he said to the Samaritan woman, I am thirsty. Psalm 69 says, You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar to thirst for my thirst. Now, those passages aren't that bad. Yes, we expect Jesus to say something like that, but let's keep reading. It goes on to say, may the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound. They talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime, and do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and not be listed with the righteous. Maybe this is why Jesus, who had all power and all authority, and previously had said to a man who was paralytic, I forgive you, maybe this is why Jesus said, Father, you forgive them. Because they're killing me, and at the moment I can't do it. I love these passages that show me how human Jesus was. And rather than spitting in the face of the soldier, and rather than calling seven legions of angels to take him off the cross and slay the wicked who were in front of him, Jesus simply cried out, and he said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. And if you want to know what that means, look it up.
talked about shows you more. The next words of Jesus we want to look at come from the very next verse of what I just talked about. It's from John 19, verses 29. 20 or 30. When he had finished the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I want to add a little context to this verse. When Jesus came into the world, he was coming to a people who were oppressed. He was coming to a people who were under the oppression of the Romans. He was coming to a people who were looking for a political savior. These people, the Jews, had a land covenant with the God of Abraham. And their land covenant gave them a barometer of prosperity, which is how they knew they were doing well with God. The land covenant said when they are obedient to God, they will be on their land and they will be blessed. And when they are disobedient, they'll be exiled from their lands and they will be cursed. So the people of Israel knew how their relationship was going based on their prosperity in their lands. If they were prosperous, there was a good chance they were doing well with God. If they were not prosperous, there's a good chance they were out with God. So their barometer was their prosperity with God. 
Now, Jesus, when he came into this world, came to do something different. And in Mark chapter 8, it says he asked his disciples who the people thought he was. And some said they thought he was John the Baptist. Others said he thought he was Elijah. And still others said they thought he was one of the Old Testament prophets. And then John asked his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah. Now, surprisingly, Jesus doesn't rejoice and say, great, let's go tell people. He says, shh, don't say anything. And he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be persecuted and even die. And this is what causes Peter to stand up and rebuke him because the Messiah Peter was waiting for was not a Messiah who was going to suffer. He was the Messiah who was going to set them free politically. And Jesus went on to say, not only will your Messiah suffer and die, but you, my disciples, my followers, will also be persecuted. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, when you are persecuted on account of my name, you should rejoice because this is how the people treated the prophets of old. Jesus was giving his disciples a new barometer they would know they were doing well in their discipleship. They would know they were doing well in their relationship with Jesus, not when they were prosperous, but when they were being persecuted. And the disciples hated that idea. They did not want to be persecuted, and they did not want to follow someone going to a cross. And from the book of Mark, chapter 8, through the end of the book, even beyond the end of the book, Jesus is fighting with his disciples, trying to get them to embrace this new barometer of suffering and to give up their old barometer of prosperity. Have you ever wondered why, as American Christians, if someone tells us, or if we have to tell somebody, I am praying for my daily bread, not I'm sitting down before a meal and thanking God for my food, I am praying for my daily bread. I have no money in my wallet. I have no money in my bank account. I have no check coming in the mail, and my cupboards are bare, and I am praying for my daily bread. And when we have to acknowledge this, we feel like a failure. Have you ever wondered why we send our missionaries overseas with evacuation insurance? People know we have it. We're not fooling anybody. They know when civil war breaks out, when famine hits, when disease breaks out, they know the American rich, well-educated missionaries will soon be getting on a plane and leaving them. They know that this country does not send its missionaries out to actually die. They know we will leave them with a Bible and a verse and our prayers. But they know we will be getting on a plane and returning home to the safety of our country. Why? 
because they know, by and large, Western Christianity does not have a barometer of suffering. It has a barometer of prosperity. They know that. They understand, they've seen it. We watch it summer after summer, year after year, decade after decade on our reservations. We know what happens. The people overseas know what happens. They get it. This is what's so amazing about this passage. Jesus is hanging on the cross. In Matthew, it says when he was arrested in the garden, he told the people, the soldiers, do you not know that I could beckon my father in heaven and he would not send 12 legions of angels? There's 6,000 in a legion. 72,000 angels to come and set me free. In Philippians, we are told there is one reason and one reason only Jesus died. And it's because he submitted himself to death. He could have jumped off that cross at any moment. He could have slayed the people who were crucifying him at any moment. He could have brought the heavens crashing down on this earth at any given moment. The only reason Jesus died is because he allowed himself to be crucified. He submitted himself unto death, even death on a cross. All power and all authority in heaven and on earth was at the snap of his finger. And he chose not to snap. If he was an American and he was hanging on the cross and he cried out, Oh, Babel, it is finished! And then he jumped off the cross. here to die come on Jesus cried out it is finished and then he hung his head and he gave up his spirit He had no evacuation insurance. He left everything on the cross. And he submitted himself to death. 
even though at any moment he could have jumped off. Because he did not have a barometer of prosperity. He had a barometer of suffering. And this is the barometer that he challenges to you and that he challenges to me. And when I think about that, when I ponder that, it terrifies me. And I think that's the point. It terrifies me how easy it is to save my life. And how excruciatingly painful it is to submit myself unto death. Even death on a cross. to be dying with the trouble of this world, the trouble of this world, oh, the trouble of this world, I confess that I want to be done with the trouble of this world, I want to go home to live with God. to be done with the trouble of this world, the trouble of this world, the weight and the trouble of this world. I want to be done with the trouble of this world. I want to go home to live with my God. With the trouble of this world, the trouble of this world, oh, the trouble of this world, I want to be done with the trouble of this world, to be home and live with God. Help me, because I want to be done. With the trouble of this world, the trouble of this world, the trouble of this world, I confess I want to be dying with the trouble of this world, going home to live with God.
Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. Centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Out of the pain of the cross, Jesus dies. Jesus breathes his last breath. When I was a kid, I would hate Good Friday services, honestly. I didn't figure out why I would hate them because um, they didn't seem happy enough to me. Why do we have to keep talking about dying? The spirituals that we experience tonight that go so deep in our hearts and souls leave us in this place of lament and reflection or hate. I didn't want to stay in that. Jesus dies and gives his trust and his life back to God. This scene is horrible. I am bleeding. I have been mocked. I have been scorned. I am thirsty. But I give you my life. Doubt is in the air. Peter denies. Yet, Jesus says, I trust you. Lament, hiding, weep, weeping. And Jesus says, God, you take care of it. Jesus gives himself to God. Some, after seeing this scene unfold, they see Jesus die and give himself back to God. And all of a sudden, out of the death that occurs before them, that they were explicit in, they are convicted instantly. Jesus walking into death and actually dying changes their hearts right away. Some felt horrible. They beat themselves. They were left to lament their actions. They were left to live with the fact that they killed a man who was innocent. It's Friday. Things look horrible. It's 
Friday, and immigrants are being denied human rights. It's Friday, and racism is rampant. It's Friday, and Native women are disappearing without a word. It's Friday, and we're standing on stolen ground. It's Friday, and queer youth, 80% of them on the streets are homeless. It's Friday, and gentrification is displacing people all over around us. It's Friday, and mass incarceration is alive and well. It's Friday, and women make 70 cents to the dollar that men make. It's Friday, and it's dark. It's Friday, and it's scary. It's Friday, and we are not.
Thank you for being here this evening. One of the painful things, the sufferings that I had to go through as a kid was that these services lasted three hours. We only kept you an hour and a half, so uh, we pray that you leave this place with a thought of Good Friday on your mind in anticipation of Sunday morning. Hug someone as you leave. Go in peace. <laughs>